This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, June 8th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, county addresses Pinion Park occupancy. Justin Criado leaves the Daily Planet. Library readies for a revamp. And a mountain weather forecast. How big is a room before it counts as a bedroom? That was the question before the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners as they considered the properties at the recently completed Pinion Park Affordable Housing Project in Norwood. Paul Major, who leads the housing nonprofit Rural Homes, which collaborated with the county on the housing project, presents the issue to the commissioners. It's a pretty straightforward proposal of reclassifying within the guidelines for Pinion Park the three-bedroom homes to two-bedroom homes. Um, we had advertised these homes at three bedrooms, um, and we realized once we saw the houses and actually some of the buyers, they really said it's a two-bedroom house with a flex room. What exactly is a flex room? Major explains. So it's really, it's a, it's a smaller space than a bedroom. Uh, so it would, you know, I, it just, not, it's not consistent with how we think about you know, master bedrooms or the size of bedrooms to say it's a full-size bedroom. I think it's going to get used primarily as an office space or when they start new families, a place for, you know, crib. The so-called flex rooms are only 81 square feet, while other bedrooms in the development fall closer to 130 square feet, which is a more standard size. Reclassifying the houses from three bedrooms to two bedrooms with a flex space adds flexibility to how many people can live there. The deed restriction at Pinion Park requires a three-bedroom house have at least two residents, but a two-bedroom can be sold to one solitary dweller. If you have a three-bedroom house, you have to have a roommate based on the guidelines. So this allows singles that want to have home ownership to be in a uh, two-bedroom house with a flex room. But that flex space could still be used as a small bedroom, so these homes might have as many as six residents. Thus, the new classification opens up the homes to a wide range of buyers, anywhere from one resident to a group of six. While Major says that flexibility is a good thing, Commissioner Ann Brown points out some potential beds could go empty. The downside would be that we would have those potentially a couple of those homes that are under-occupied. I know that's something that the town of Tyred works really hard to make sure we don't have. So we would be taking a different position on that. But I understand the need for flexibility. At the heart of the issue is the fact that a large handful of homes at Pinion Park remain unoccupied, and they are still looking for buyers. This is a rarity amongst affordable housing projects in the region. So Commissioner Lance Waring says while he sees Brown's concerns, it also goes in the opposite direction. There's reason to be concerned about under-occupation. I think there's also reason to be concerned about unoccupied. Yeah. So, In hopes of getting at least some of those beds filled, the commissioners voted to approve the reclassification of the homes. Stay tuned to Kodo News for forthcoming updates on the Pinion Park development. For the past seven years, Justin Criado was at the helm of Telluride's local newspaper, The Daily Planet. Recently, he left. Criado stopped by the Purple House on Pine to chat with KOTO's Julia Caulfield, for an exit interview. Hey, Justin. Thanks for coming in and chatting. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So you are the newly former editor of The Daily Planet. Um, 
for folks who maybe are learning the news right now that you are no longer at the newspaper anymore, can you just share a little bit of information of like, what happened? Why are you here? Well, you know, I started in 2016. I moved out here from Pittsburgh for the job. I was a senior staff writer then, then associate editor, and I was named the editor in April uh, 2018. So I was going on seven years with the company uh, in general. And then on May 12th, Friday, May 12th, yeah, I was presented with uh, a resignation uh, slash severance slash non-disbargement agreement, kind of out of the blue, that did want to keep me on for at least 10 more weeks, which would have been through like the 4th of July to help with the transition. And, you know, that part of it would have been when we were going to announce my quote unquote resignation. And uh, the thing that really stuck in my craw was the non-disbargement agreement. I was like, nah, I think I'm good. And I just took the, I guess I was, I was fired essentially, but I, t- I made the decision to be terminated immediately. That was my two decisions. So here I am. And now I'm just freelancing and working odd jobs around town. Looking back on your seven years or so at the planet, how do you look back on that time as, um, as a reporter, as the editor? Yeah. I mean, I haven't had too much time to reflect. And I think that's just my journalism brain. Cause you're always on deadline for like the next day. You're always living in the future. But the fact that I made it seven years, I, it doesn't feel like that. So I think that's, you know, something to kind of hang my hat on to a degree. And more so than, than anything, especially the sour way that it ended, it's like I was able to really make good relationships with people in the community. And I always love telling people's stories. I always like that I had an avenue to write. And that includes like my columns over the past four years to do a little bit more creative stuff. But yeah, the being a small small town you need a small town paper and that's the role that kind of the planet has fit in and yeah just being able to kind of be in the middle of all that it was a really great way to to get to know the town do you look back and is there a a story that like sticks out I mean seven years of stories that's so many but is there one that sticks out of like oh I just loved getting to do that yeah it's kind of two ends of the spectrum so shortly after I came here was the Norwood cult uh, homicide story, which was obviously huge news, made national news. So being able to get, uh, like get get on that immediately, like I was out at the site like the day that the discovery was, and then I followed that through uh, some of the court proceedings until I kind of handed it off to another writer once I became the editor. Um, and then there was like there's a ton of like community features which are my favorite. I love writing about like just community community news and like arts and entertainment, particularly music. But like getting to interview like Warren Haynes, Kevin Smith when they were coming to town. That's just something like you could kind of take for granted because we do have world-class entertainment all the time. But just being able to chop it up with them is uh definitely my that was on top of my list. What are you doing now? What's the next chapter for Justin Criado? I've been a regular writer for uh, Denver Alt Weekly Westward, so I'm still doing that. And uh, and then I'm working on my second book, which I got a Telluride Arts grant for. It's called Lies I Tell My Cat. So that's uh, I could definitely focus more of my time and still be writing. And then, you know, I have a part-time job here at a bar in town, so that's my social life, <laughs> sitting at the bar on the weekends. You mentioned that... Um, it's important for a small town like Telluride to have a local paper that really like tells the story mm-hmm. of the place that we live. Having that in one hand and then like also recognizing that maybe your experience with this said paper didn't end on the best of terms. Mm-hmm. Where do you 
like what do you hope for local news in our region and what do you hope specifically for the planet moving forward? I never doubted that they'll continue to push out papers. It's just going to be a meat grinder on the back end. But I think the role of local journalism, especially in small towns, needs to be paramount to any business decision or business uh, plan that you have for running a small town paper. And that's kind of where, at the end, I just was not agreeing with their editorial decisions. And I just expressed that in very plain terms. And obviously, that's not what they wanted to hear. Um, But you have to really get rid of conflict of interest. And anyone can look at the masthead and then match up names in the advertising. I mean, I'm not revealing any secrets here. But I think they really need to have local news by local people. And right now, there is zero editorial employees living in Telluride. I was the last one to live in the town of Telluride. So they'll make it work. They'll still get content. But are you going to get the content that readers really want? I mean, that's for them to decide. But uh, I think it would be a shame if we became a news desert and didn't have a, a newspaper. Well, thank you so much. For all the years that you gave to writing and covering the news for our community. And yeah, thanks thank for coming you. in and, and the next chapter that you get. Thank you. I appreciate that. And just a, a thanks to everyone I've worked with community and an editorial over the years, like the relationships are what I'm going to be taking with me and maybe some clips, you know, for my next <laughs> stop. But, but I've really enjoyed being like kind of the center of news, the news cycle in that sense. So it's been fun. In a statement to KOTO News, Telluride Daily Planet publisher Andrew Merrington said the newspaper is limited to discuss an employee's personnel file. He adds the editorial staff is, quote, empowered with very broad latitude to cover the news and all the things that happen in Telluride. He goes on to say the publisher's job is to oversee all departments of the newspaper, quote, including the editorial department on occasion. Ah, yes. The sweet hush, the quiet murmur of the Wilkinson Library's upstairs level. It will soon be a somewhat more dynamic environment as the library embarks on some renovations. I don't think it'll be very stealth. I think it's going to be noisy. I think you're going to see the crews using the elevator a lot. And a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of activity with the, the shelving, dismantling, and the installation of the new shelving. That's library director Sarah Landeryu discussing the library revamp, which is scheduled to begin on June 19th. The redesign will not involve actual construction, but will change up all the furniture, shelving, and the layout of the second floor, and involve the installation of a set of enclosed work pods. Landeryu says the redesign was prompted by the changing habits of library patrons. The use of the library has really changed. And we need to optimally use the space that we have to best suit patron needs. And so what that's going to involve is allowing in more natural light, more places for people to work, more places for quiet study, collaboration. And we just feel like people here deserve to have the best library they can possibly have. And so this redesign will bring that to the community. A lot of those changes came about during COVID as students and remote workers began to seek out spaces for taking calls, meeting a tutor, or escaping the home office for a bit. 
The meeting rooms in particular have become a hot commodity, Lander U explains. And so what we're going to get, and these aren't coming until August, will be three pods, and they're like private phone booths, per se. So there'll be two individuals and one for two people where you can go in, shut the door. It'll be pretty acoustic. You can have a conversation and those will be really exciting. We're, we're happy to have that. It's going to be like three new meeting rooms without any construction. The DVD collection, which over the last five years has seen a 75% drop in circulation, will be downsized and moved upstairs creating a flex space with display shelving and seating in their current first floor location. The highest level of activity will take place between June 19th and early July. But, says Lander U, despite the disruption, the library will not close. We want to remain open. The, you know, the areas downstairs will be open. Telluride room and the meeting rooms will still be open. And... The kids' area and youth activities will not be impacted by this. The redesign was a collaborative effort as staff held brainstorm sessions and worked with a designer. Library Services Manager Jill Wilson says she's looking forward to a brighter, better second floor. I'm just really excited to see how people use the new space. And I, I think one of the most exciting things for, for me as somebody who you know works here and works at the desk sometimes is we're getting some lower shelving. So more more of that beautiful natural light that we have here in Telluride is going to be coming through the, the upstairs, the second floor, and we'll be able to see the whole space. I'll even be able to see, hopefully, Ajax from the desk. Although the library will remain open, the parking garage will close for storing and receiving new furniture and shelving. In its entirety, the work should be completed by August. Amidst the routine bustle of the library's busy summer season, what's a little renovation anyway? Jeep drivers and high mountain passers know patience is a virtue. This is especially so after a long snowy winter, such as the one slowly releasing its grip on the San Juans. Mountain peaks are still brimming with a historic late-season snowpack, and San Miguel County is notifying residents and visitors that high mountain roads will likely open later than usual this year. The County Road and Bridge Department is prioritizing maintenance on lower elevation roads, which have been ravaged by washouts and high water levels. After completing those projects, the county will move on to the region's high passes. Last Dollar Road is already open, and Imogene Pass connecting Telluride to Ure is up next. The rest of the area's high passes will trickle open throughout the coming months as the snowmelt rushes down from the peaks. You've probably heard of a barn raising, an agricultural community coming together to hoist and hammer the frame of a new building into place. But what about a barn fundraising? That's the task at Schmid Ranch this weekend, with ticket sales for a dinner and concert going towards repairs at the historic property. The event, held at the ranch up on Wilson Mesa, will feature lawn games, dancing, a cookout, and music from the Ghost River Band. The iconic Schmid property is listed on the state and county historic registers and stretches over some 900 acres, with a history reaching back 140 years. 
the San Miguel Conservation Association, along with the family and other interested parties, are working to preserve the horse barn and other historic structures at the property, hence the boot-stomping barn fundraiser. The event is this Saturday, June 10th, kicking off at 5 p.m. Governor Jared Polis vetoed several bills on Tuesday that had previously passed the state legislature. One of the bills would have given public bodies and local governments a way to reverse violations of open meeting laws. Polis said he was concerned the measure would harm public transparency. Another bill would have given local governments first dibs on properties that go up for sale, as long as they use them for affordable housing. Polis said the bill could create more liabilities for lenders, push them to increase interest rates, and drive up costs for renters. He also points out that local governments can already bid on properties that go up for sale. Wednesday was the last day Polis could veto bills passed this year. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe hosted its 134th annual Bear Dance in Towak, Colorado this weekend. This year, the event was open to the public but closed to the media. Reporter Clark Adamitis of KSUT dropped by the annual powwow event nearby. The rhythm of the drum echoes through the air. 150 people sit on lawn chairs. Dancers, adorned in vibrant, jingling regalia, are here from across the region. The bear dance powwow in Toyak has seen some restrictions in recent years. This year we came out of COVID in May. Ute Mountain Ute Chairman Manuel Hart watches the powwow from a distance. May 11th to be exact, by resolution from the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, we lifted our declaration of emergency. So once we lifted that, things opened up for all of us. Some powwow dances are shared between tribes. Bear Dance is a Ute celebration. Hosting the two events during the same weekend allows the tribe to share something quintessentially Ute with everyone. We have this celebration that only the Utes know, and the Utes carry this on every spring. So with that, it's just very important to us to teach our children about the dance, the songs, everything that comes with it. So My new outfit is being the process of being made. It's uh, I see one man, probably in his mid-twenties, who is putting on pieces of an outfit made of red fabric and animal fur. Darrell Vicente is a Hickoria Apache man who goes to 20 to 30 powwows every year. It's really fun, you know, when you feel that rhythm, the beat, and you know you can, you know, get down. Vicente traveled more than 140 miles to get here from Dulce, New Mexico. I even taught my nephew, my nieces, and my brothers, I encouraged them to dance to, you know, to keep this going. We've been doing this ever since my grandfather was dancing. Vicente carries the memory of his grandfather in the multicolored regalia he's wearing. It represents the prairie chicken. And you know, my breastplate, it was made by my grandfather. And right now he's not here, you know, may God rest his soul. And you know, he made it out of love. And he told me that he danced with it when he was, you know, my age. And then I feel honored, you know, to wearing it and dancing it myself. The bear dance and the powwow are annual celebrations of renewal. For Chairman Hart of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, it's a chance to appreciate the common bond of all living things. We celebrate what life is about. Our Creator gave us a lot of things. This year we were blessed to have 
snow on the mountains. And today we see that water, water is life. And it brings all of us together because water is very essential to everything, human beings, plants, animals, birds, everything. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. Earlier this month, three states that use water from the Colorado River agreed to use less over the next three years. They were able to reach a deal thanks to an exceptionally wet winter. As snowmelt flows down to the cities and farms that depend on it, KUNC reporter Alex Hager went to see the Colorado River get refilled in real time. Ken Brenner is sitting on the yellow rubber edge of a huge inflatable raft as the boat splashes through the Yampa River. We're flying along. There's like, no way in the world you could run this fast along the side of the river. The Yampa cuts through wide sagebrush plains and dramatic red rock canyons in northern Colorado. And this year, it is full. Water is the highest it's been in more than a decade. Well, it's like a roller coaster, only there's no rail. It's You're all at the mercy of the water and your helmsman. Brenner grew up on a ranch near the river and now has a role in state water policy making. He's one of 30 people on an educational trip down the river where snowmelt is rushing downstream. That leaves a bumpy ride of big rapids, even for an experienced guide like Alyssa Schaefer. Every time we come around the corner, we don't know what to expect. Are we going to see big holes that we have to avoid? Or is camp going to be harder to catch? Is there going to be an eddy there? All kinds of unexpected amazing stuff happening. This year has been an exceptionally wet one across the Southwest. Extraordinary snow in the Rocky Mountains is flowing through the Yampa into the Green River and then the Colorado, where the nation's largest reservoirs are gonna get a big boost after getting squeezed by years of dry winters and steady demand. The tap is like swung fully open right now. We're seeing that happen here. Matt Rice with the conservation group American Rivers is sitting on the banks of the Yampa where the roiling muddy water has crept up so high it's drowned the sandy beaches that usually serve as campsites for rafters. We are quite literally being saved by the Yampa Basin right now. When every molecule of water is important, right? The Yampa is delivering on such a monster scale right now. The reason the Yampa looks like this is partially because it's relatively untouched as western rivers go. This water did not come from behind a dam, nor was it diverted from another basin. Lindsay Marlowe runs the conservation group Friends of the Yampa and says it's rare to see that on display. When we talk about the greater Colorado system, we really focus on it as like a commodity, like we're buying and trading and, and we seem to forget the people and the habitats and the animals and the fish along the way. And a lot of that flora and fauna is thriving this year. Alongside the river, bright, lush clusters of trees and bushes are home to a noisy chorus of birds. Underwater, endangered native fish are seeing conditions primed for reproduction. And all that water is moving around sediment, creating and maintaining better habitats for them in the future. Marlowe says it's facts like those that get lost in big conversations about water management. We don't know by changing things and controlling things how much that affects the greater whole. And when people don't feel the effects, they tend to ignore them. 
As the region's water managers make decisions about that big picture, they're facing the reality that one wet winter will not save the Colorado River. Audrey Turner, another member of the trip, is enjoying a sunny stretch of flat water, a break from the rapids. She's with the Colorado River District, a water policy agency. It's important to, for us to be grateful and appreciate what uh, Mother Nature gave us and, and recognize that it might not be here again for an unknown period of time. I'm Alex Hager on the Yampa River. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low near 40 degrees. Friday should bring partly sunny skies with a high near 65 and a slight chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon. Friday night calls for partly cloudy skies with a low near 40. Saturday calls for partly sunny skies again with a high near 65 and a 20% chance of thunderstorms, followed by a partly cloudy night with a low near 40. This has been the news for Thursday, June 8th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.